a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right, welcome back, everyone. Nathan Rome is with you. We are coming up to Remembrance Day, and I've got a number of guests lined up to talk about service and sacrifice. We are going to talk about their experiences in training and deployments, the memories, the people, and the impacts of service. I've also brought along a co-host this year, uh, retired Sergeant Ben Click. So Ben spent 20 years in the Canadian Army, much of it behind the rifle. Now he teaches mental management and marksmanship to military, law enforcement, and civilians. He is the owner of Sierra 64 Riflecraft and had two previous appearances on the podcast. Uh, he was in episode 16 from the first season and was the first of our Remembrance Day series from 2022. Today, uh, we have guest Nicholas Turner on. Nick has served 18 years in the military in two different occupations. He spent nine years in the infantry with three PPCLI. Here, Nick was the sniper detachment commander and a parachute instructor. Nick completed two tours in Afghanistan. After that, he went to selection and became a search and rescue technician, or SARTEC for short, uh, which he's been doing for the past nine years. Nick worked operationally at 413 Squadron. I hope I'm saying that right. Not four, 413, it's 413. Yeah, 413. <laughs> okay. And uh, that's in the province of Nova Scotia. Then as a SARTEC instructor in Comox, where he's helping to kind of shape the future of this trade. So welcome, Ben and Nick. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Awesome to be here. So, uh, yeah, we're kind of got a new dynamic this year. Got co-host in here. So I think uh, we'll have even kind of a more full conversation about stuff. But um, yeah, Nick, uh, we'll let you kind of take it away and and start at the beginning and tell us about uh, you and where you're from and, and growing up. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, uh, thanks again for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, starting with uh, my childhood. I was born in uh, Ontario in uh, Toronto uh, because my dad was in the Airborne Regiment uh, with two commando in Petawawa. So I was born out in Ontario there and we lived in Petawawa for four years and then we moved out to Calgary where you went to one PPCLI. So being in a military family, we were kind of already moving around right off the bat uh, in my life, kind of starting from my first memories of moving away from Pet and getting into Calgary. Um, we spent four years there and then we moved to Wainwright, which is still in Alberta. Um, we spent a good chunk of time in Wainwright. That's kind of where I actually got to spend a lot more time with my dad because he wasn't deploying. Um, overseas anymore he was teaching at the school and he was around a lot more so that was uh, really good for our family life and family dynamic and uh, we spent I think about seven years there and then we moved out to Edmonton where he went back to one PPCLI and started getting ready for deployments to Afghanistan while I was in high school okay um so we thought we were living in Edmonton that's kind of where our home base was for a long time because when I graduated high school I joined the military and uh and left and came back to Edmonton to three PPCLI and spent nine years there. So that was kind of our home base for a really long time. Yeah. 
Well, and so when you're uh, growing up, and this is something I always find fascinating, you talk about like the military brats and moving around. Do you find that has uh, uh, any kind of effect on you as a kid? Do you think it, it makes your life, uh, is it is it harder because you're moving around and changing homes and friends or do you, you know, did you kind of thrive throughout that? Yeah, I think um, it's really hard at the time when you're a kid. Um, just as well as like having your father deploy, like all those things, you know, not getting to spend as much time with your parents as you would like, plus having to move um, were very difficult things. But that being said, like later on in life, I think it served me very well being able to be like a, an adaptable person and kind of meet people and make friends easily. And it kind of helped prepare me for my own military career in, in mm-hmm. a lot of senses. So um, yeah, at the time as a kid, it was, it was challenging and tough. And then as an adult, I could see the benefits that it had. Yeah. Kind of in retrospect, it's, you see the benefits is, uh, can you talk about just kind of what kind of, uh, kid you were? So were you, you know, more the outdoors type or were you growing up like in the city and, um, just supermarket and back and then, you know, easy life. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, we lived in, like I said, in Calgary for a little bit there when I was younger, but, uh, I was always really into sports and that was a good way for me to get out my energy and maybe some of my feelings without really realizing it, you know, being, Mm. having my dad away or, um, you know, having to move again or whatever. But I always felt like if I was out running and and doing something, then I would, uh, I'd be in a good headspace. Like when I look back at us an adult, that's kind of how it looks now, you know? So I was like playing soccer, lacrosse, football, skateboarding, um, running track and field, always kind of like, you know, doing something active and physical. Yeah. Do you think, uh, I guess that would translate really well into the military lifestyle. So you're playing uh, sports all seasons, you're outdoors all seasons. So you know what, what it's like. Yeah. I think, uh, for me, I don't know if the sports really translated over other than like I had a good base of physical fitness when I left as an 18 year old to join the military. I just already had a good base of fitness, not only from playing those sports, but you know, when my dad was around, he'd take me to the gym. My dad was a big time power lifter. Um, so he would always take me to the gym with him when I was a teenager, show me how to work out and, and train properly and eat properly. So, you know, he, he gave me lots of good tools which also help build into my military career and kind of the way that i attack fitness within it yeah did your dad kind of do you think he kind of pushed you in a certain direction he's like i'd like him to be in the military when he grows up or is it you know are you kind of left to uh say choose whatever path you'd like yeah my parents were always very supportive of choosing whatever path that i would like but i think um my dad being such a strong personality um, without meaning to rub that stuff off on me, I think a lot of it did. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I thought the, the last thing I was going to do was join the military, but uh, I wasn't a very good student. I didn't take, not because I'm not smart, but because I didn't take school seriously when I was growing up. And I wasn't really interested in the subject matter. I felt like we should be doing like lifestyle skills and um, we weren't really doing that. Right. So, uh, when it was getting close to the end of high school, my dad's like, Hey man, like, what do you want to do with your life kind of thing? And I said, well, I yeah. think I want to join the fire department. And my dad said, well, 
you know, you kind of have to have a resume and he kind of just talked to me about doing a three-year contract in the military and kind of gaining some life experience and going from there. And I, I heard him out and I thought it was a really good uh, decision for me to go gain some life experience, but here I am, well, you know, over 18 years later. So obviously <laughs> uh, I liked it a lot more than just for a three-year contract. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you have any, uh, any siblings, anyone else that's kind of gone into the military? I'm an only child. Okay. And maybe on a little bit on family history. Uh, so outside of your dad, uh, anyone else that's served or kind of had a, a, an impact on you? Um, I mean, like growing up, you know, meeting a lot of my dad's good friends, they were, you know, people that I called uncles, Yeah. for example. So, you know, meeting lots of strong characters like that. And I think that was one thing that, you know, kind of drew me to the military later was that I could see how uh, tight my dad and his friends were and they all had like similar interests. They all were fit and worked out and talked about sports and they were always super fun to be around. So yeah, that was, I, I think there was a bunch of different in- influences from different levels, I guess. Yeah. Well, when you're talking about that and uh, the working out in the fitness, I'm picturing your dad is uh, six foot six and like 250. <laughs> <laughs> well, my dad's uh, slightly shorter than me and I'm by no means tall man. So uh, yeah. I would say five, seven and a half on a good day, but he does weigh in at over 200 pounds of muscle for sure. There you go. Um, so when you're, you know, when you're growing up and you're just talking about a bit about the school aspect, uh, was there anything that you were better in or geared more towards? Like, is, is it, you know, phys ed kind of your, your jam and then everything else you're like, ah, I could do without that. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Phys ed was always fun because you just got to go run around and do something fun sports wise or train for something. Um, so I enjoyed that and there was a guitar class. Um, so mm. that was pretty good to get to actually learn guitar for free lessons, you know? So, yeah. uh, that was pretty sweet. And, and then other than that, it was really hard for me to find something that kept my attention. I needed to, to be moving around and, and yeah, it, it was really hard to sit still and learn, learn math that I didn't feel like applied to my life. <laughs> so Nick, was it, was it all, or was it, was it mostly military schools, base schools you went to? Uh, no, I, I, when growing up, I was always kind of going to a school off of base. So even in Calgary, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause, cause I wonder like, uh, you know, you talk about early influences and family and stuff and, and, uh, I don't know, I think Nathan kind of knows this for anybody listening. Uh, I've known Nick since, uh, he's probably about a year old. Uh, his father and I uh, served in, in two commander together and then crossed paths again in the uh, the battle school. Um, and I wonder, you know, what as a kid, whatever we see and whatever we do, we think that's normal. But I didn't see too many nine or 10 year olds in the Wainwright gym smoking pads with their dad, like gloves on and, and boxing with their dad. Uh, to the point where they're just covered in a sheen of sweat. I walked into the gym one day and there's, there's Nick just wailing away uh, on pads. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's, that's not a typical experience. Like not a lot of nine or 10 year olds have their own ghillie suit. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So you, you've had tons of strong influences. Uh, you know, your, your parents are both rock stars. Uh, you're surrounded by all these people who are uh, very similar in their motivation. They're very similar in their discipline. And as a kid, I think, you, you know, we, we accept that as normal, but 
and I offer them maybe when you get out and after two or three years, you'll look back and go, oh man, that was not normal. Like that is, that's, that's a pretty unique upbringing. Yeah, for sure. I already started to take a look at that actually. Like I talk, I'm talking about some stuff in therapy and I'm realizing, yeah, like, you know, I guess my childhood wasn't super normal, but it was, it was amazing in all of its own ways. Right. So, yeah. Um, I think a big part of that is what, like what you take from it, you know, as a, uh, once you be, you know, you grow up and you can kind of reflect on things, you have that maturity, you look back and you're like, yeah, it was, it was different, um, outside the box, but the uniqueness kind of lends to maybe some different skill sets, some different strengths later on down the road that a lot of other people don't have. Yes. You had those experiences. So might be harder in like one aspect of your life, but it, uh, serves you better in another or further on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's a really good point. A lot of those, my childhood served me very well. Um, yeah. You know, once I joined the military, and another thing, like adding into a bin saying where maybe it wasn't normal, it's like same thing. I'm like going on camping trips to the drop zone so I can watch my dad skydive on weekends and like yeah. stuff like that. It's like, yeah, no wonder I love jumping out of planes. And it would just seem so normal to me growing up to watch people jump out of planes. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a normal thing. Everyone does that. Yeah. And I, I, I remember, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember, and it might have been in the gym too. You did something to help or support somebody else, and and I'm like, yeah, that that kid's got the the thing that counts, and that's mindset. You know, that teamwork. You know, you talked about sports and stuff, and and that's beyond the physical fitness. You know, you're you're learning the importance of teamwork to the point where it becomes automatic. You know, you may not even realize it when you're nine or ten or eleven, but that's it becomes a daily function. But it's something that uh, sometimes has to be taught to some people. Where with you, I'd offered probably uh, probably came pretty automatically just from watching the the circus that was uh, was the people around you in your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, Ben. That's a good point. I think the camaraderie part too, because you just mentioned that, and that you only get that from teamwork. But um, I find camaraderie like once you're you're part of a a really succinct team some you know everybody's working together you can find your you know you might have your disagreements but everybody's really good uh that camaraderie is like a massive draw and i for myself anyways i find it's like it's hard to give up so i can see why guys go further down the road like you're saying sometimes um parents might not be home as much uh they want to get out there and be with you know be with the people that they're with uh at the job but you ever find did you do you find like that's uh, an issue for you at all when it comes to being a part of these groups or maybe you're deploying um, kind of letting go of that coming back to family civilian stuff yeah actually it can be pretty challenging like even I'll give you an example as an instructor at, at the school here at Sitsar um, you know we're, we're so busy during that year-long course that we're constantly deploying away on different phases and spending so much time with these guys and it ends up sometimes being more time than you spend with your family yeah and then sometimes you're back with your family so when you're with the guys you're missing your family and sometimes when you're with your family you're missing the the vibe of the guys yeah absolutely so used to being with them for such an extended period of time right yeah yeah i find that even uh with work now like we do our four on four off and then on the four off i'm super bored in like four days off so i usually gotta work an overtime shift and then finish all my work around the house like you really gotta 
keep busy. Yeah. No, no I, I think you hit on it very well. Uh, Nathan is it, you know, when you're, when you're out there, you talk about your kids, you talk about your family. And then, uh, when you get back, you know, you sit around with the same people you just spent all your time with and talk about work. Uh, or when you're at work, it, uh, do you ever find that like when you're at work, you're at work. Yeah. Like when you're, when you're on the hunt, you are, you're on the job, your mind and your heart and everything is there. Yeah. Um, you ever find that happens or you ever like, Oh yeah. Hey, I, I have a family. <laughs> it depends. Like, you know, when if there's something specific going on and, and you're, yeah, when you're out there looking for things, um, you've got a specific goal you've been given a task, a mission, you are like fully committed. You're involved. Um, especially in the job, uh, that we do, or I imagine military, mm -hmm. you know, it's life or death some days and you can't afford to not be in the mindset. So I think a lot of it comes down to the focus and able to put yourself in the zone, um, for that period of time. One of the things I find it transitions to though, is when you're done your shift, it's hard to, um, it's hard to like wind down, right? You're just still kind of thinking and thinking. Uh, so it takes like, you know, some people it takes like half hour after their shift or two hours, you know, they come home and they might just watch TV for two hours, even though they're home at like 4 a.m. They're not going to bed till 6, 7 a.m. So you're kind of, you got to come out, come back down and uh, get back to like, I'm in this quiet house. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing going on. Most normal people are asleep at this time. So I got nothing else I can really be doing. Um, except maybe just go down the YouTube rabbit hole and, and make myself dumber <laughs> or something. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's about the, like a lot about that mindset. I find it's hard to um, bring yourself out of that and wind down at the end of shift. Yeah, I believe it. Is there any, any particular rituals you have or other people have other than, you know, like watching TV or whatever? Is there anything specific you do? Not for me, but, um, I, I know, you know, obviously the bad one that some people get into is drinking <laughs> to kind yeah, of relax exactly. and stuff. Uh, but you gotta just have find different coping mechanisms. I keep busy with like the podcast stuff. Like I can do this all day, every day. I'm researching people. I'm looking things up, yeah. you know, trying to make connections and talk to people. So I keep myself busy really with that. Um, but yeah, Nick, we're just kind of talking here about, um, you know, what, what you do when you're trying to, when you finish a shift or a deployment or a mission, whatever it might be, just kind of how you transition out of that and wind down from, uh, from what, whatever you were involved in. Yeah. I guess I got two different things because I had two different careers, right? One, which is very similar in shift work styles as you, but, um, and then one where, yeah, I was deploying overseas and when you're coming back, it's really hard to reintegrate back into society and being a, what I would consider like a normal person mm -hmm. again. Um, it was, it was definitely really hard adjusting coming back from my first deployment. Um, so I didn't really have like a ritual or anything, but like you mentioned, yeah, I was like drinking lots, um, because I just guess I didn't really know how to cope right when I got back from there. Um, so that's kind of how that, that went returning from Afghanistan. But, uh, whereas being a SARTAC working shift work, getting called out on missions, um, you don't know what you're getting yourself into kind of similar to being a cop until you're on the ground. Right. 
Yeah. Um, and then you could go do something super crazy. And then once you're off shift, you're like, boom, right back into being a dad and trying to <laughs> get in the swing of things. And I think it's kind of a hard adjustment to do to switch from something that was really high intensity to just go right into to being a, a dad or getting into your normal daily routine again after something like that. But I would say after like night shifts and stuff, I'd have to come home because I'm so you're amped up from flying around in the helicopter for hours and your body's still like vibrating. So yeah, like you said, I'd, I would end up just trying to watch TV for a little bit to calm my body down so I can get some sleep and get recharged for still being on call for the rest of the night. Yeah. I see you got a gym behind you. So you got, you got yeah. a home gym and everything there so you can work out or, or do something else. Exactly. Yeah. Now I got the, the gym down here and yeah, I'm in a good route using that in the morning and, uh, yeah, it's a good way to to just come in and burn off a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Just Nathan, just to to add some context for people who are listening. Um, Nick's talking about two very different things, and and I wonder how very different they are. Nick was a uh, combat sniper deck commander in Afghanistan with with a couple tours, uh, where he's gone for months at a time. And now, what you're talking about as a SAR tech is for very short periods of time. You're out on one mission. But what most people may not know is that I would I would offer that being a SARTEC is just as or perhaps at times more dangerous than, than your former occupation because you're doing it all the time. You know, you're going out into the unknown. Um, what SARTECs do is extremely dangerous. It's, it's continuous risk management. Uh, and they're putting their lives uh, on the line, you know, on a continual basis. So you're getting up to that level of mental performance. And then you got to switch back and, you, you know, you come back and, and you see people getting annoyed because the Wi-Fi is down. Um, have you ever looked around, Nick, and like looked at the real world after a, a risky mission and gone like, well, what the hell? Like, what, what are these people complaining about? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think that's something that, um, you know, can actually bother me quite a bit when I see someone out in public being bothered by something so mundane and they're taking it out on somebody else like really rudely. And I'm just like, really? That's what you're concerned about? Do you not have any real life concerns? Like, yeah, so um, definitely hear what you're saying there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Um, so maybe we'll move into uh, kind of the recruiting and training um, some of the stuff. If you, you, if you could kind of walk us through like, when you made the decision you wanted to go into the military, talk about going through some of the recruiting, um, what that was like, and then uh, how training went, your initial training. Okay, yeah. So when I made that decision, like I said, after having that conversation with my parents and having my dad kind of recommend, hey, go get that life experience. And then after having that, you can kind of apply for whatever you want out there, but you're bringing something to the table. You're not just an 18-year-old kid out of school. So I'm like... Yeah. Okay. Like really that, that makes a lot of sense. All right. I'm down. Like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go do it. So actually what's pretty funny is it's not like I gave it a ton of thought. I was just like, you know what, that's three years. I can, I can commit three years, um, no matter what for, for gaining life experience and like serving, um, the country. So I'm like, yeah, all right. So I went down on my 18th birthday. I went down to the recruiting center in Edmonton there and I, like asked to go through the application process and stuff like that and then it was like really quick where i signed up for what i wanted to sign up for um i did my aptitude tests and physical exam and a couple other things and then 
it was just kind of a waiting game after that. Um, I graduated. What year would this be? This was in 2005. Okay. So Afghanistan is kind of going on, but it wasn't at the... Yeah, and actually, while I was joining is when they signed off on offensive operations for the first time since the Korean War. So that, mm-hmm. that happened in 2005. And then in 2006 is when Canada started offensive operations in Afghanistan. Even though we had been there for you know four years prior, um, that's when the real... Uh, offensive operations began so as i was joining uh right as, as i was signing up that's when they had our government had just cleared like yeah we're going to offensive operations um so i kind of already had an idea like uh that i would get the potential to deploy to afghanistan within my contract and stuff like that but i you know i didn't know what the military looked like and to me i was like People in the military all look like my dad and his friends. And here I was like a little skinny, 125-pound, 18-year-old. It was really hard for me to put on weight, uh, but I was super fast and stuff like that. So I had some stuff to bring to the table, but I was like, uh-oh, like, I don't know how this is going to go for me. So uh, after I did all the stuff for signing up on my 18th birthday, like I said, um, I think I waited about a month and a half, and then I got a phone call. Oh, really? That quick? And I was off. And I was off. Yeah, off to the military. Um, yeah, and then I you have to swear into the military first. So right before you leave for basic training, you go swear into the military. And that's actually where I met uh, my closest friend to this day now. We we swore into the military together. And mm-hmm. kind of were like, oh, look at, <laughs> look at this guy. You know what I mean? And then uh, we went, because I had like super long hair and I was a skateboarder and I had a thrash band and here I was looking kind of like skateboarder hippie, you know, I'm swearing into the military and he's like, who's this guy? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and then I showed up for basic training already with a shaved head and I was wearing a suit and he had a shaved head and he was wearing a suit. We were taking it serious. Like we were going to a job interview and everyone else around us looked like they were bums. And I think we got to kind of bond off of that right off the bat that we were taking it serious and we're here to, we're here to kill it. Yeah. So, yeah, so I met him and I kind of like, we had an instant connection. So it's like, boom, I already got this like military camaraderie, camaraderie that, uh, you know, I always saw my dad have. I was like getting it right off the bat. That was already pretty cool. Um, yeah, basic training kicked off. And, you know, like I said, I was a skateboarder and I was in a thrash band. And now here I am uh, marching around doing drill, uh, sewing name tags into socks. Spit shine boots, starching and ironing shirts, and I'm like, "Whoa, I don't know if this is for me." You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Because um, that's kind of like your first exposure to the military is like doing all that stuff right off the bat. Um, but I was like, you know, like I I committed three years to this. So I'm not I'm not a quitter. I'm not going to quit anything. So I'm going to give these three years and see what's up. And this is like, you know, ten days into it, I'm already having these thoughts. Okay. Countdown to three years. Um, yeah, basic training I found difficult because of those reasons. Like it was some things that I wasn't. I was like, "What? This is the military?" It's like, "No, it's the basic parts of the military. Everyone needs to know this stuff and then go do your thing." So um, you still do some some stuff on there that ends up being fun near the end of the course and kind of prepares you to be like, "Okay, that's that stuff. Okay, I think I'm gonna like being in the military." Yeah. But and I could finally get out and do the physical stuff. So, uh, one, you know, basic training. I mean, that was 18 years ago. So, 
I've done so many courses and so many experiences since then. It's really hard to kind of like look back and remember much about that. But I remember because it was not as impactful as like going to battle school and, and Wainwright and becoming an infantry soldier. Yeah, for sure. So after basic was done, we went to, we went out to Wainwright right away and started course right away. Uh, so me and Gavin were both going to the PPCLI. So we both went out there together. Um, with a couple other guys that were going to PPCLI. And then we met a whole bunch of guys that were there already waiting for us to come and join that course. So we started right away the next day. And um, that's where we started to, on that one, it was called soldier qualification. That's where we started to learn like section weapons, like the light machine guns and M203s, which are the grenade launchers. And um, a little bit about the platoon weapons and stuff like that. Uh, and then just some basic tactics um, that they want everyone in the army to kind of know. So the basics of section attacks and basics of defensive positions and and uh, patrolling and offensive patrolling. So that was all the basics of that stuff. And then as soon as that's done, then you go to battle school and get like more detailed infantry training for another couple of months. Um, and that's where you really bond with everyone who's going with you there because on that once you're done that course we're all going we graduate we become PPCLI soldiers and we're all going potentially to the same battalion together to work together so okay um super tight with the guys there i'm still friends with you know a bunch of those guys to this day actually one of them's a sartec with me um, oh, wow. so it's pretty cool yeah what was it nick what was what do you if you remember what was the attrition rate from the guys who started uh soldier qualification learning to be an infantry soldier yeah definitely. to when you graduated more people definitely quit that than they did when we were in basic training there's just like a couple of people that quit in basic training because they're not used to being away and they're like ah oh, this isn't for me i don't want to be away from my cats and then they quit and, um whereas yeah at battle school um there was more people that want like once they kind of saw what the start of the training was we're like, oh, is there another trade for me that I can do in the military? And they kind of just quit the course and, and ask to remuster to something else that they think is easier than infantry. That's what I kind of found. So uh, I wasn't like a huge attrition rate. I started doing attrition rate style courses more when I got to battalion. But uh, yeah. I'd say there was like probably, there's probably only 30 of 30 something of us that started the course. And I think we finished with 21 guys. So wow. Mm, okay. Wow. That's pretty good, actually. Pretty small course, but you know, a lot of the guys off of my battle school course were just like fit, switched on, like all ended up being like epic soldiers at battalion, like all became jumpers and wrecking patrolmen, and some guys right on. horses and Sartek. So yeah, right it was on. a very successful group of guys. Excellent. When you went through, were you going through during the winter or was it summer? Yeah, it was winter one basically. So I started in summer at, at basic and then when i was doing sq and battle school went into the frigid alberta temperatures yeah. for sure so yeah, and then by the time he graduated it was the start of april so yep. yeah so it was uh cold cold sq and battle school <laughs> like yeah we were, it'd be good for weeding out some people <laughs> yeah the cold always ends up doing that that's why in, in sartec we run our selection and winter because the cold's a whole other beast on top of the physical and mental things that are already happening to you mm -hmm. yeah one thing i can remember on 
to this day is like the bone rattling feeling I could feel from hitting the frozen ground that's like borderline concrete with a pickaxe to dig a trench for like two days solid until we actually had a hole. <laughs> yeah. Your hands are so sore. I'm sure Ben's done the done that a couple of times to know what i'm talking about yeah it's funny man i didn't realize this like i remember when you went through but uh i didn't really realize till now that we had almost exactly the same dates like you know i was like started uh uh basic training in august got to battle school just before christmas and graduated in like april or whatever yeah that's our exact time then man yeah August. Yeah, you gave me like a minor flashback hitting the hitting the sandy frozen soil of Wainwright so hard oh. that sparks are coming off your pick. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just rattling yeah. your hands. You know, it's like, oh man, yeah, yeah. Don't miss that. I just digging. <laughs> I'll say maybe one day they're going to give people some heated gloves, heated socks, <laughs> something like that, just to run to Costco. <laughs> um, now, I like that aspect that you're talking about, though, like how, you know, you take each of these steps and you go through and all these different experiences, really, uh, you really see the character of certain people and it comes through as things get harder, but also stacked on top of one another. Yeah. So you have, you could have a hard individual task, but when you got like six of them on top of each other, that's when you really see who like wants to be here, who's really motivated, right? Yeah, oh. Totally. So after you do your, um, your, you're out of the training and then you're in infantry, um, what's lifestyle kind of like for someone who's now in PPCLI? Yeah. Uh, it would be hard for me to say what it's like now because, you know, like I said, when we joined, it was Afghanistan era and everything was about training and real time war. So, uh, it's not quite like that at the battalion anymore from what yeah. I hear. Um, like I said, I haven't been there in, you know, nine and a half years, so I, I can't give an accurate reading of what it's like to be a PPCLI soldier now. But for me, um, when I got there, uh, it was fast and furious. I, I got there in April, and like a week later, we deployed to Dundurn for a three-week training exercise where we were just doing like section attacks, living in bibs, and uh, yeah, just being a light infantry soldier, essentially, and really getting like more from what we were doing in battle school and being like, okay, this is how it is for real. Like, you know, with the mindset of like, Hey guys, we are training for war yeah, and we are going, it's just a matter of like when we're going. So everything was about training and, and re and treating it train as you fight style. Right. So take everything just as serious as, as if you're actually on a tour. Can you talk a bit about that? Like that, that as soon as, you know, what's the moment where they come to you and say like, this is real. Like you, you're going to be gone next week or whatever it might be what's kind of your mindset and then i'm wondering what did you tell family and what was their uh reaction or or mindset yeah um well i mean my dad and, and my mom being you know who they are like they already knew what they were getting themselves into by having me uh join the military so i always found it really easy to openly talk with them about what's going on and like hey guys like you know I don't know exactly how things are going to go, but I am going to be deploying to Afghanistan at some point. And at the same time, my dad was getting ready to go on the first uh, combat tour, which was Task Force 106, the first offensive. So my dad was doing his workup training for that. I don't know, sorry, he was actually deployed because I got there in 2006. So my dad was already three months into the first 
combat tour. Wow. So the whole time I was out of school and stuff, my dad was on tour. Um, and you know, you're, that was, that was pretty challenging as well. Um, so yeah, while I was going through battle school, I didn't have my dad to talk to. Um, and I knew he was out doing the shit. So, um, that was challenging for me too, but I just had to block that out. So then when I was at battalion and we were out training and, and doing all that, it was very real for me because my dad's already there. I know that I'm going to be there. It's just a matter of when. Um, and there was casualties starting to, to roll in at those points um, already. So uh, there was just no doubt in anyone's mind in the PPCLI at the time when I was there that this was very fucking real. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we need to take this serious. So everyone's out there training super hard. Yeah, I like you know, you talk about oh how you're gonna talk to your parents. Hey dad, I'm going to Afghanistan. Hey son, we're both in Afghanistan. Yeah. You know, like it was a little very, very different for you. And but I I saw a change in the in the uh, the people who were joining the military around when you did, is because everybody that joined, especially the ones that are going into the infantry, uh, or the other combat arms were like, Hey, I, I'm joining to go kill the Taliban. Like I'm joining to go to war, and it was a very different mindset. Um, did you see any people like as you were going through battalion workups? Did you? Just, I mean, no one's going to show it overtly, but did you pick up on anybody who's like, "Holy shit!" Especially, I'm going to ask specifically about your your NCOs because remember they joined before Afghanistan. Yeah. Did you see any not hesitancy, but like kind of a different mindset in in different people? Um. You could see it on certain people, but I think you would have been able to see it without the aspect of war coming on because maybe they just weren't at that level because there were some guys that had obviously no combat experience yet. And then when they, and then when they were there, they were unreal leaders and, and just react, you know, but there was also guys that I think already had incompetence with them yeah they took that over there and then you throw war in with incompetence it's not going to go good and, uh, and i had to see somebody get fired and removed from their job because they were going to get somebody killed right yep. um and then you know the inexperienced leader now has to step up and be the leader so i, I saw that as well over over there and i saw some people get removed from tour during training for just not maybe being in the same mindset as everyone else. And they're, they're falling a little bit behind on things. And you can't really fall behind when you're patrolling in Panjway. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. When you're doing some of the training and, and leading up to actually deploying, did they do any kind of training around like desensitizing, like making you so that you're, you're, I don't want to say more able to kill, but it's like, you know, they don't, if something's going to happen, they don't want you to hesitate pulling the trigger uh so is there stuff around that that they do i don't know and then on the back end i guess do they do any sort of training that's for like ptsd or or anything before you deploy well ptsd was so new at the time like our government still didn't know what to do with that okay. um so yeah i would say nothing with that at the time they, they were trying their best to do it when we were like coming back from tour with like four days in cyprus but and ended up just being like guys going out and getting super drunk up and just making it to like one briefing yeah. and then guys are getting hurt in trouble, but they were trying something, but it was just still so new, um, for them to deal with at the time. Uh, uh but as far as, um, 
What was the other part of the question, sorry? Just around like desensitizing people. So, oh yeah, yeah, like our I guess scenarios, people are might be maybe more dressed up to look like someone you might be fighting. Exactly. Is there any other stuff that they might do to you? Yeah, there's lots of different things that happen all throughout it, but I would say that some stuff is happening from repetition, like you're shooting at you know targets that have people on it. You're shooting into kill zones. Um, you know, you're you're role playing with actors, but I think a lot of stuff happens like, you know, Ben could probably agree with me here, but some of it is like subliminal with just the way that everyone's talking all the time, the dark yeah. sense of humor everyone has. And that's an infantry soldier's way of being able to desensitize, take a step back because you know, you might have to get in that position where you have to pull the trigger at a human being but you want to make sure in your mind that you don't view them as that. Yeah. Um, that's, that's my way of looking at it. And I feel like that happens just through living the infantry lifestyle out in the field, training together, living together. That's interesting uh, aspect too. And yeah, Ben, if you want to jump in, uh, it's the, the desensitizing kind of comes from just the people around you and the conversations you're having lead you further down a path. So you almost get that uh, group think. Maybe that's what it is. Exactly. When you talk about like trying to get there, everyone's trying to get prepared for war in their own way. Yeah. Um, and when you spend time with people, that really like comes together on a on a whole other level. You know what I mean? And uh, you know, I would I would also say, yeah, there was lots of training too. But like, just the second part I was talking about really like brings it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's. Uh, um, there's some things that are done deliberately, some things that are done uh, subconsciously that are that are designed uh, to to prepare people for what they're going to go do. Um, there's different things even in battle school where um, I mean, I, I trained young soldiers uh, for one or two courses in their what Nick's talking about the, the soldier qualification, their the basic infantry training, and. Where in my dad's day, I mean, they were and, and when I was a teenager, we were we were slaughtering animals on the farm most people were coming into infantry training uh having killed nothing bigger than an insect or a mouse so there's an opportunity to see uh livestock die during that kind of training and then further on uh as you advance in training when you get into specialty areas there's specific things done that are to design so that it's like an inoculation and whether it's the the uh performative hatred of your drill instructor during basic training uh when and when you're have you ever seen uh gunny uh, uh not your gunny uh have you ever seen arlie emery in full metal jacket the reason that man got that job as an actor is because he'd been that job and when you're doing that job you're acting you know you, as an instructor you're standing outside the quarters before inspection and it's all joking and stuff and then everyone puts their game face on and you turn into a a raging hating asshole as you you go in and tear through all these trembling 18 and 19 year olds as you tear apart their lockers and beds the sergeants may not know why they're doing that but what they're doing is they're inoculating young soldiers to being hated mm. because many and most of them will have never faced that before so it's something called the wind of hatred one of the normal reactions when you're first shot at for the first time is why is he doing that to me like why, why is he you know again consciously or subconsciously one of those reactions can be uh just flat out fear and and moral indignation that you're being someone's trying to kill you so a yelling sergeant uh 
teaches you to dissociate you and and trauma bonds you with your friends <laughs> so yeah. you, you know you know uh we we call it team building it's also called trauma binding or trauma uh binding but um whether it's deliberate or it's just kind of cultural people talk about and they verbalize um yeah things that like about the enemy about themselves and you like you said nathan group thank you you know like when i teach when i teach combat breathing to like 25 year old studs i've got to call it combat breathing it's yoga breathing yeah <laughs> but with 25 year old studs you got to call it combat breathing right so there, there's a language and there's a uh, a thought process of by doing it together uh you start to you start to dispel it and you start to um spread it amongst you so that the fear and the anxiety is is something that's that's soaked up by the unit um so yeah, long answer to a short question is that yeah, there's things that are done deliberately and things that are done by accident that are done to prepare people for. Um, yeah, and afterwards, uh, I'm going to say I'm going to hats off to the EPS because they've got one of the best reintegration programs I've seen in my life. It is light years ahead of the Canadian forces, and I think you get a much higher success rate of uh, uh, preparing people to go back into the job than the CF does. Yeah, they've been exporting that to uh, all kinds of services. Uh, I think he's uh, like yeah. Glenn Close, who runs that. He's been going worldwide, uh, as far as I understand. Yeah. He's been everywhere, uh, kind of. He's a rock star. Yep. teaching that. So, um, that's awesome. If, so for Nick, I'm wondering now, like you, you get through all that training. You're saying you you get you're about to deploy, like pretty much right after you're coming out of training. You talk about the actual deployment. So you get those orders what you're feeling, yeah. how you're thinking. I think uh, a bit of stuff happened in between there though. It's like I said, like mm -hmm. I, I got there and playing to train and then, you know, our, our leadership said like, we will be deploying in the next chunk of time. I don't know when it's going to be, but we're going to train as if we're going right. Um, but I didn't deploy right away because that was in 2006 and I was going to be deploying within like a two year period. We found out we're going on task force 108. So two years after my dad's deployment. So in that amount of time, I did my my jump course, so my parachute, basic parachutist course. I did my heavy machine gun course. I did my wrecking patrolling course. I did pre-sniper and then sniper course. Oh, wow. Okay. And then my lab turret course, because we all needed a lab course to deploy. And then within all those courses and things that I was doing, we were doing workup training, so deploying to the field to prepare for our deployment. So I was kind of away pretty much that whole time, other than my lead blocks, like training and, and taking these courses. And then, yeah, when we, we got told we were going to be deploying in March uh, 2008, and we were on our, this was still in 2007, right when I got off my sniper course, we were back out in the field completing our last uh, two-month workup deployment where we're doing a lot of realistic training. We got like the miles gear on, which is kind of like, a laser tag system so you can see if guys are getting shot and hit when you're doing the training and uh, we're living out beside our labs and doing turret shifts all night eating rations so you know trying to prepare for like the most uh, detailed version of, of how we could be living on the offensive overseas so uh trying to get the resupplies in the same manner we would do it there wow and yeah going and practicing and doing uh patrols and and uh all the way from 
platoon to company live fire attacks, both dismounted and mounted with the with the labs. So there's a lot of complex training that happened there. Live fire, lots of stuff with flanks, lots of stuff with actors, but so many switching through different phases to get all the checks in the box that we needed to say for the government to say that we're as prepared as we can be to be the battle group that's overseas. So that was kind of when we had the word like, hey, we have a deployment date now. We're finishing our, our our workup training. We're ready. We're worked up. We're ready to deploy as a unit and make this happen. How are you uh, physically at this point? So you said you came in at like a buck 25 and you're doing all these things and you're out in the field and yeah. eating the rations. Like, are you dropping weight? Or are you able to put on any weight? Like, what, what do you look like? I was, by the time I deployed, I was probably 140. Okay. So you picked up a few pounds. Still only 20 years old at the time. So, yeah. Um, yeah still having a hard time putting on weight <laughs> when I would go on tour. Um, I ended up going back down to about 120 by the end of tour. Oh, really? Wow. We were living in a combat outpost for like 80% of the tour, just living off of rations, kind of cut off. So, yeah, kind of lost a lot of weight eating rations and patrolling in the heat that's hotter than hell itself, I'm sure. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so you deploy in March 2008. Um, yeah. Is there, so, what, I, like, at what point are you kind of, you know, you're on the plane or something going over there and you're like, Okay, like this is it. I got myself and I'm in the shit now. Yeah. This is uh this is what's happening. Family that morning before we got on the plane, as soon as I said goodbye to them and kind of like got on the bus to start driving away, I was like, okay, like I'm I'm leaving for real here. Like this isn't going to fucking Wainwright to train anymore. Like this is real. Mm -hmm. So don't know what's gonna happen or if you're gonna get hit or whatever. Almost part of it that I would learn later on tour is that to keep going out after you're in firefights or you watch one of your friends step on an IED and die is that you just have to accept that you're already dead and that we can keep going on yep. patrol. So that's some kind of a, something you don't quite learn in training. You have to be prepared for, but in, until it's real, like I, I kind of had to learn that. Really? Okay. And, and hey, hey, Nick, talking about that did you ever uh do you ever write that letter the one that's supposed to be mailed after you die i didn't know no yeah yeah it's that's a that's a tough one yeah when you're 19 20 yeah is that something they had yeah. you do i think it's something several of us did and then like gave to each other or whatever mm. um but it wasn't it wasn't an instruct like it wasn't a instructor thing i think just somebody started doing it and then a bunch of us did and, and i wish i'd kept that yeah, uh, kept that letter, but uh, it's uh, I don't know when you're 19 or 20. You're like uh, you know, I, I know I I'll talk to myself about myself. Like I knew I was bulletproof. Like it never even entered my mind that you know that I, other than that letter that I would possibly die. I'm going to win. I've seen all the movies. The hero always wins in the movies. So yeah, um, yeah. Just kind of continue on with like uh, so you you didn't end up writing these letter, but you know obviously the thoughts in your head because you're saying you have to. Uh, prepare yourself or you're thinking like I'm already dead. So I'm just kind of soldiering on. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think that at first I was thinking, you know, this is very real, but I would find out later, like I would have to think that in order to go back out on patrols and shit all the time. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kind of like 
click in your head. So that's something I had to learn there. But yeah, when I was already weaving, I was like, you know, the potential to get hit is there. You know, I've already seen it a ton of times at this point now because it's two years into offensive operations. So, you know, it's very real. It could happen to me. Um, and I feel like if you don't have that attitude, like, that it can't happen to you, it's dangerous at first for sure. So uh, it's, it's good to think about the realities of war before you step into war for sure. Yeah. Thinking about that on the very long uh, flight to Afghanistan. Um, because you have so much time to sit in your thoughts on that. Yeah. And then you get super nervous and you're like, okay, like, don't know what to expect out of anything. You can feel the heat already. It's not too crazy because it's March, but it's still already like a normal hot day out. And, you know, for the first couple of days, all we're going to be doing is staying in the big basin, which is called CAF in Kandahar province at the airstrip there. We're just going to be there for a couple of days and we're going to get bunch of briefings our roe's briefing which is our rules of engagement um we're doing a little bit of training we're getting all of our our full combat load of ammo we're getting all of our gear ready our labs ready everything ready to deploy out to the first place that we're going to go and do the first task that we're going to do so on the first task that we were going to do uh we are basically so we spent four days there got everything prepared now we're ready and now the feeling is real, like we're driving outside and going into just, you know, Taliban country, essentially. Kandahar province, Panjwezari district. It's where a lot of the fierce fighting's happening at the time. And it's and it's our area of operation. Canada's holding it down with just a, a 500 person battle group, mm. which is pretty crazy. And uh, yeah, we have a bunch of forward operating bases. So the first thing that we're doing is we're doing a road move out to a forward operating base, which was actually an area MSG was called, and Massengar. It was actually where a big battle happened on my dad's tour and the tour after uh, by the white schoolhouse that's down in the valley there. So they had to like take that area in order to do the offensive they were doing there. So now it's a it's a big forward operating base that we can launch out of. So we were going to go there and do observation posts and uh, and do quick reaction force so respond to anyone who needs a needs help um but any nato forces whether it's american or or brits or whoever is there operating mm -hmm. uh, yeah so we, we went there and that was our first task for those two weeks and now we're outside the wire we're driving down and now you're like okay this is real yeah <laughs> when you when you first uh kind of leave your where you land and then you're driving out to this um, what does it look like there? Like, is this just a big barren wasteland? Or is it just desert for miles and miles? Big mountain views all in the background of Kandahar there. So when you're on, it's basically like you're, you get out on the road and there's just like flat desert and then big mountains is what it looks like right off the bat when you leave there. And before you got there, were you getting any kind of, uh, were any war stories kind of coming back? from people who had already deployed oh, yeah. and like you're kind of going out thinking things yeah totally like so many stories so much like so much has happened already so many guys have gotten hit already mm. from the ppc a lot both like the first second and third but like all three battalions so um yeah it's just you know you could hear them all over the place we're always learning about 
stuff from those tours as well too right so it's non-stop stories and that's how we're going to learn from what's been going on over the last two years as well so yeah you're hearing a lot about the realities of what's going on over there so your mind's spinning over everything right you're over hyper vigilant yeah i imagine like every time you drive by a vehicle you drive by uh, i don't know a rock on the road you're just like yeah that's something this could be a thing like you're just hypersensitive yeah to a lot of things yeah oh yeah um, over overdrive of hypervigilance. <laughs> yeah. Did you find when you're done your days, are you just, you know, that much more exhausted mentally, physically? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the heat, mm. once it was the summertime, like that makes you tired as well on top of what you're doing. But yeah, like when it's time to go to bed, even though you're in a war zone, it's pretty easy to go to sleep when it's your bed. <laughs> no, you're yeah. For another shift sooner, you're going on a night patrol or whatever. So it's like, it's my bedtime. That was one thing that back then in the infantry, it's like, you have to have that skill set of going to sleep like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a superpower. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've seen guys go from full conversation to lying down and snoring in like literally 10 to 12 seconds. Yeah. Wow. Like just switch off and it stays with you. I I just flew back from Germany and I think I was conscious for about 35 minutes of the flight. (laughs) Like that, that doesn't go away for some people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so can you walk us through some of the, um, some of the missions or things that you were a part of while you were over there on, on your deployment? Sure. So I was switching between a couple of different combat outposts that we had where our area was. So after we did some QRF stuff there, like, I don't want to talk too much, uh, war story style stuff because yeah. that's just not something I'm uncomfortable uh, getting too hardcore into or anything, but, um, yeah, basically after, after we did our first task at MSP there, we moved out to where our company fob was, which was called Spruwingar. Just outside of Spruwingar, as you went back down that road, there was Checkpoint Brown and that was manned by Afghan National Police at the time. Okay. And sorry, that was Afghan National Army. And then all of all of our areas we were going to go to, they were called police substations right when we got there. But the, there was no use really for the police that were in there because um, it was on route fosters and it was so heavily IED, no vehicles could travel there anyway. So now you just had these Afghan police out at these essentially like combat outposts. Mm. Um, but what they did out there was A&A guys and infantry guys. So we went out there um, every three kilometers as, as, the road goes was a new uh, outpost. So the first one was Hadi, second one was Zangabad, third one was Talakan, and then there was a strong point that was far out there called Mushan, and that had a whole bunch of ANA guys there, and then one small detachment of Canadians of four guys that went out there. And that place we did hit hard throughout that whole summer. So once we started getting out into those outposts, um, the first three weeks we were there, we were with, like I said, uh, Afghan National Police, and then they swapped it out, changed the name from police substation to combat outpost, and we got uh, Afghan National Army counterparts to work with us there. Uh, each one was a different size. So the first one, we would just have a section of infantry soldiers there, which is like anywhere from eight to 10 guys, and then eight to 10 ANA guys, and they would just man this small little outpost. Wow. And... And then the next three kilometers over would be like a platoon house. And it would be about three sections worth of infantry guys, three sections worth of A&A guys. And same with Talakan, which is the next one. And then, like I said, Mushan, 
was a strong point. So I had 50 ANA soldiers and four Canadians and that's it. Crazy. And we manned man these for seven months on our tour. So I would say that the tactics now were kind of almost like, I would say this tactic was almost like a Vietnam style tactic, like set up these outposts, but we're not actually gaining any more ground. We're just holding these pieces of ground right now. Um, so for a while we would just, you know, do presence patrols and, uh, you know, look for areas that we can make map out areas where we potentially we're going to get hit from and all of those kinds of things. Right. And about two weeks into being at Talican is where we got in our first firefight. Just you never forget when it's a feeling of someone shooting at you for the first time. You just hear the snap crack and then everyone's like, oh shit. And it was crazy how quick everyone reacted and how good of a job everyone was doing despite being shot at for the mm -hmm. first time. Maybe it just felt that way, but. Do you feel your training um, really kicked in? Were you, were you prepared enough, you think, for that, that point when you look back on it? Yeah, well, I think a lot of the a flight over to Afghanistan, I was thinking, am I ready for this? How am I going to react in combat? Like, am I going to be, am I going to be a dependable, good soldier? Like, you know, you play through all these questions and then when something actually happens and you do good with it, you're like, okay, like, that's, it's good. I know what I'm doing. I can trust myself to do this job. Mm. I know how I'm going to act now. Um, yeah, I, I would say after that first one, it kind of lets you know, okay, I didn't cower over. I can, I can rise to the occasion. I can, I can do my job. Yeah. Did you, did you feel it was kind of like a, like a rite of passage almost like it's a confirmation of everything you've done? Yeah. And that's a good way to look at it. And you don't yeah. want to like end up going back from a tour and being like, I didn't get anything after everyone else has. And you kind of feel like it's one of those, be careful for you wish for things. Oh yeah. I, I wished as I was going there to be in combat and then I would be in so much that I would be wishing for it to stop. So yeah. that's where I learned once in a start deck, I would never wish for a crazy mission. I'll just let them happen. <laughs> I learned, learned that from my previous mistake of wishing. I find if you're yeah. just, it, this is even like my job, right? Being with the police, it's like, I don't really have to uh, hope these things come across my path. It's like, if you're out there doing your job and getting involved in in things like it'll happen to you something will come across your path enough times that you're like yeah that that's more you know one is more than enough but you know however many more times you have it you're like i'm not hoping for these things now <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> i would uh i would wonder like in the the kind of jobs both you guys have had um it may also be part of who you are I mean, there's there's safer jobs in the army than doing what Nick did, and there's certainly safer jobs in the in the police force, and and they're just as important. I get that, like, but there's do you find there's a certain type of person drawn towards the work that you do, and and what do you see those what, what makes a good I'll call them hunter because both of you are hunting people to a degree. Hey, you go ahead, Nick. Uh, yeah, um, I would say a certain type of person is suited specifically for the job of being a, a sniper or a SARTEC. I would say, you know, those are the people that I relate the best to to this day. So they're obviously yeah. very like-minded um, and very similar 
uh, to me um, so I can relate with them and we all have shared common experiences. So it's really easy to relate to those people over others. And I can see the similarities that I have. It's hard for me to relate to people almost outside of those worlds sometimes. It is. Yeah. 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 And I would kind of echo a lot of that. It's, um, I don't know what it is that makes a certain person want to do these things. I think it's just a kind of a culmination of uh, a lot of the life experiences and growing up and, and the things you get mm-hmm. into uh, for me and kind of what Nick was saying earlier, like a lot of the uh, the team aspect of it, the camaraderie, for me, that's a huge draw. And that's something I harp on, on like all the other podcasts that I've, I have people on here for and, and just talking about that. Like that's something that's missing nowadays. Um, but that's, that's getting like into the politics of it and everything that that's going yeah. on. So, um, yeah, no, but I, 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 I agree you know, with what Nick's saying. So, um, so you're talking about like your, your first deployment, um, and just, uh, kind of respect for your time and stuff. I want to make sure we get onto a bit of the SARTEC too, but, uh, so your first deployment, how long did that last? And then what, what did your, when did your second deployment come up? Oh, so we were, my first deployment was from March to October of 2008, so seven months. And then my second deployment was in 2011. So I had about a couple of year gap in there, three year gap where I was doing a lot of training and courses and teaching courses, everything like that, still training for tour and deploying to the field. But you just kind of never know when you're going to redeploy. So the next one I deployed on, yeah, was uh, from, was now I got to experience Afghanistan for, throughout a full year because then I deployed in October and got home in March. Oh, okay. So for my second tour. So I kind of got to experience the all the uh, seasons of Afghanistan throughout my two deployments. What's uh, What's Christmas in Afghanistan like? It's still cold. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people like look at the desert and actually I'll tell a quick story about when I felt like I was going to die on my first tour because mm. it's hot and then I'm on observation post at night and like yes I'm a sniper and a checked out guy and everything but I'm still 20 years old and I'm still a newer soldier so I made the mistake of not wearing warm gear and I just like had to lie there shivering all night and I was just like oh my god but I didn't want to say anything and let yeah my master why too stupid to dress warm so I just sat there and suffered <laughs> and I learned pretty quick okay although Afghanistan's a very hot desert it is really cold here so yeah it was still it was still really cold at Christmas in Afghanistan and I would say Christmas in Afghanistan is a little depressing because Christmas is very oriented and you're away from them but I guess you're with your uh second family so you just make do and and uh try and have something jokingly good for supper yeah (laughs) (laughs) maybe if we combine these six things together they'll taste like something else (laughs) well so uh what was it like when you're going back in 2011 because now you got that so you have you know uh was it eight months eight months your first deployment and then um you know, you have three years of all this extra training when you're going back, like what's your mindset in 2011 now mm-hmm. you've, seen, you've been through combat and everything else that's happened. So what's that like for you? Uh, there was a couple of things that I guess caused a different mindset. And that would be like one, I've already been there. I have the experience and I kind of know, okay, I'm going back there. 
Um, two, I'm not a, I wasn't a 20 year old, no hook private anymore. Now I was, you know, a little bit older. I was 25 now and, uh, well, about to be 25 and I was a master corporal and like I was now had like my sniper deck manner course and had been teaching on sniper courses. So I was a much more mature, experienced soldier. Um, so I had a different mindset in that manner as well. Um, but it was definitely like very nerve wracking on this flight in a different way than it was on the first flight. The first flight was not, was all the unknowns. Mm. This flight was like, I know I'm going back to <laughs> Afghanistan. I know how real this is. So it's a different set of nerves that were kicking in for that one, for sure. Okay. Even though my second deployment was completely different. My first deployment was full on combat in Panjway district in Kandahar province. My second tour I was like a tactical advisor um, for A&A guys, and I was up in Herat, Afghanistan. So different spot. Didn't see combat up there, um, but the threat was still there the whole time. So mm. the battle up there not getting complacent. And when you saw complacent, um, that's when I would need to, as a leader, like be like, hey, guys, like this is really fucking serious. Yeah. I know your job different, and you haven't gotten a firefight here this time, but like, Let's let's stay on on point here, boys. Yeah, the complacency, it's super hard to kind of not let that creep in. You see that in policing all the time. Like just something hasn't happened for months, no big event. Uh, and people just get real lax with like everything from equipment uh, to their, you know, whatever gear you're bringing out. People aren't taking care of themselves. Uh, it's like, it's a very... Um, that's a real battle to have with with a lot of people. When you go back as master corporal, are you in charge of anybody now? Yeah. Like, are, are you bringing a team over? Yeah. Now I'm in charge of a couple of guys who are out on my team. So we would only go out in like teams of anywhere from like two to four guys, and then there would also we were working with some Italians and American counterparts hmm. as well, and they would have little detachments out with us, and then we would have. Anywhere from three to four hundred A and A guys with us. Wow, so many. So, yeah, we were doing like tr- extra training with the machine gun ranges, weapons classes, all this kind of stuff to help their training programs. But uh, you know, the screening program's still not the best there. So there's always like embedded Taliban too, right? And that's kind of the main reason that we're out there, and that's why I really have to brief the guys. Like, boys, we're going to a machine gun range today where they're doing yeah. live fire. There's 400 of them. You're going to be on. You're going to be standing behind the armored vehicle, ready to take up a fire position with the C9, like everything like that. We need to be safe, right? Like, because guys are just like, oh, we'll just go out there and show up. No, no. And then it was actually only about a month and a half later, uh, the contractors that took over for the Canadians there, they got actually lit up from the a Yeah. So how, and that was one of the things I was going to ask is like, how is it working with the ANA? And then how do they vet them? Is it just like people word of mouth? Like, Hey, this guy's a good dude and you can trust him. Well, we were kind of vetting them in certain ways. So what we would do is we would have this machine that would scan their eyes and, and take fingerprints and it would go into their databases. And if they'd ever been picked up for anything, then they would get cleared. Um, like if they'd ever been, suspected of being Taliban or anything like that and they were in some kind of system then they're cleared but or they're they're taken out but if they get cleared 
that doesn't mean they're not Taliban. It just means they haven't been entered in a system. So yeah. it's really easy to see. So you just, we were actually doing it as they were coming in for their course. Um, sorry. As we were coming in for their course there, um, we're standing there and we had just have lineups of like hundreds of these guys and they're just getting scanned and fingerprinted and we're just standing there doing security. And then once they're all vetted and good to go, then you start tipping them out. It's kind of like a big basic training, but for the A&A soldiers is kind of what we were doing up there. Yeah. So still threat is very real and you're going to do the training. You're outside the wire, um, okay. training, right? So, um, that's where this complacency was really easy to see on that tour in comparison to the first one. And what's it like, how, what kind of quality of, people are they sending like are, is this just like a lot of farmers coming in they've never held a gun they don't know anything about anything and, and where were they from nick hmm. all like, over all over the country were they were they all afghan or are they like chechens and who's yeah, they, they were afghan citizens yeah okay yeah okay. on my first tour i was like i said like it's hard to say what kind of guys are going in um but there's definitely some amazing a soldiers out there that, oh, yeah. like that fought alongside. So I, I look at the a as, as partners for sure, but I also see that there's a potential to be a threat within it until they're not a threat. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. Did they have any, um, did they have anything besides like just a, like a basic infantry? Did they have any sort of special forces that was eventually like kind of built up? Yeah. They have everything that um, most most militaries have now, the way they were kitted out. Like, they even have helicopters, or they did. I'm sure the Taliban all have them now, but mm. they had helicopters and Hummers and uh, weapons and, yeah, some special forces guys. Those guys were always way more checked out. Um, yeah, it was actually surprising how, how much they built up over the years, okay. even in those three. Uh, I was absent of the country. Oh, I got you for maybe about 15 more minutes. Maybe we'll kind of move into talking about the SARTEC aspect. Sure. So, can I just, just, can I just shoot one question here, Nathan? Um, uh, like I said, I've known Nick uh, off and on most of his life. And his parents, particularly his dad, is a pretty major figure uh, in the PPCLI. And I, I know for a fact that for a while you were probably known as, as Tim's son. When did you feel that, when did it turn? When did you feel that your dad became Nick's dad? Like when, when did you feel your own person? Um, yeah, <laughs> that's a lot of the stuff that I'm going through in therapy actually. Yeah. It's tough, and, isn't it? Oh yeah. It was really tough coming in and being Tim's son. Um, I felt like it probably around the time I was like 25 back from my second tour as a, and I was a sniper deck commander and a parachute instructor and a free fall drum master. And I got promoted to sergeant. I kind of felt like, all right, I'm on my my own path now. Um, but where I really felt like I was my own soldier was when I went SARTEC and was entering my own career path that was different than my dad. That's where I really felt the, the change for me awesome. to be like, I have my own career within the military where I'm never going to be compared to as Tim's son. I'm just going to yeah. be. I'm just going to be right now. I'm going to be Corporal Turner until I'm successful. And then I'm going to awesome. start tech. So that was kind of where really 
clicked for me, but I was starting to get my identity as like a senior NCO in the infantry. And then it just really transformed when I, when I left and went Sartek. Right. Yeah. When you hit Sergeant, you kind of become, it's like the mafia, you get to be a made man, you know, and, and I've, I've always kind of wondered about that because you, you know, when it happened for your dad, right? Like when, when he realized, I don't know if you even heard this is uh, every November 11th, I, I host a bunch of snipers as a, to our home after the ceremony. And uh, a few years back, it was a few years back now, uh, your dad was there and, and, and your mom and uh, the whole, I think both sniper, the sniper platoons from both battalions were over. And one of the younger dudes saw your dad's name tag, Turner. And he goes, Oh, do you, do you know Nick Turn Turner? And, and of course your dad just puffs right up with pride. Eh? And your mom kind of looks over, she's all proud. And, and he goes, yes, that's, that's our son. And he, she, that guy, the dudes were like, "Oh my God, you're the father of a legend." Go <laughs> to your dad, right? He's like, and at the same time, you could see a little bit of pride, and I, I felt it too. It's like, yeah, he's he's his own person now. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was a really neat moment as a father. That's a really great moment when you become somebody's dad, become known as like next dad. So yeah, you know, oh, totally. That's a pretty yeah. funny story. That's cool. <laughs> Yeah, call him the father of a legend next time you, you see him. <laughs> he was just walking in the background there. Was that not? He was there a little earlier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, we, but you mentioned the Sartex. So, like, uh, it says that you went to selection. So, I'm guessing you have to go through a pretty rigorous course. This is it quite the process? Yeah. Um, it's a 16-day selection process. Um, and, yeah, they're just putting, putting you to the physical and mental test. And then... Uh, they're going to make their selections for their course load after that. At that point, the course kind of depends on how many people are left and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's uh, it happens in uh, January to February. Yeah. Um, I can't talk too much about it, but obviously, you know, it's cold because that's happening in uh, Alberta. Yeah. So, you know, it's going to be a cold, brutal uh, winter style course that you're going to have to slug it out and compete for a position in SAR um, against everybody else there. And these are all the best applicants of the year. So to apply, you have to have at least four years in the military. And then you can apply for the selection process and you got to pass a PT test and go through some interviews. And they actually utilize your aptitude test score is actually really important. So for anyone listening to this who's interested in becoming a SAR tech, the first thing you should do is take a look at what your CPAT score is and rewrite it. Super important. Um, it's a really high percentage for getting you on the selection. So if you know yours is low rewrite, uh, then you'll have a shot at getting on. Uh, they take the top 32 files to selection, and then they whittle the numbers down to whatever's left standing at that point. Last year, we ran a bigger selection. We ended up with 43 guys uh, on the selection. So... It ended up giving us a bigger pool of good dudes at the end to, to choose from. So this course is a really strong course that's in house right now. Okay. Well, can you, um, for people who don't know, can you explain what a SARTEC does? Uh, and then if you want to kind of come back to why you selected this or what made you choose this path? Okay. Well, yeah. So start, uh, we are, uh, we give pre-hospital care to people out in remote locations um, that nobody else can get to, and we get them to the hospital and, and, and try and save people. We are, our main mandate is for uh, downed aircrafts and marine vessels. 
um, but we do go to all the places that no one else can go. Uh, we do that via the means of a big helicopter, the Cormoran helicopter, uh, the Griffin helicopter, and right now the Hercules uh, fixed-wing aircraft are what we're flying with to go out on our missions. Um, as well, we have a lot of different skill sets that we can apply to our rescues. Um, so we're survival experts in the Arctic, on land, at sea. So we run the courses for that stuff as well for the rest of the military. Um, we're parachutists, we're rescue divers, we're rope rescue system experts. Um, we're, we're paramedics. So, and we have a lot of other skill sets that go along with that stuff. We're dropping tons of different equipment to help people. Um, yeah, I mean, the list goes on. We have a, a lot mm -hmm. of skills that we need to and, and operate with. It sounds like a, like a way beefed up version of like Stars Air Ambulance, but obviously you, you do a lot of more stuff, but yeah, you're kind of going out into the remote and getting people and trying to bring them back. Yeah. And we're either doing that by hoisting out of a helicopter or parachuting out of a plane. So okay, that's how we get our patients. And then, and then we apply our other skill sets to get them out of there as quick as we can and get them transported to higher medical care. So what made you go into this? Um, well, after being an infantry soldier and, and uh, fighting in a war, I wanted to help people on a different level. Um, so I knew SAR... We don't deploy, um, we're, we help domestically. So we're saving Canadian lives 365 days a year, always on call, always ready to rock. Mm -hmm. There's only 120 of us across the whole country covering our whole area of operation. So we're only a small select trade, um, even throughout the whole history from 1944 until now, there's been less than 700 Sartex ever. So it's a... Wow. All group of guys for sure, all guys and girls. Um, yeah, it's uh, and it was the, the best job I ever had. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, can you tell us about some of the stuff that you've uh, been involved in? Like, is it like any high-profile rescues that you've taken part in? Uh, maybe something people have seen in the news. One thing about high-profile rescues is that there's so many rescues happening all the time, and they don't. When they do report it, they sometimes call us the Coast Guard and like this. Oh, okay. I feel like there's a lot of people that actually don't know what's going on out there. I mean, like there's missions happening at the squadron and I'm at the school and I don't even know hear about the missions. So there's a disconnect even yeah. for us. Like so disconnects out there pretty big. But yeah, I've had a whole bunch of different missions ranging from, you know, going out to get people off a boat that's 250 nautical miles out to sea on the helicopter with like you know, massive sea state and crazy winds and uh, to like pulling someone off a world-class racing vessel. Um, oh, really? Yeah, going up to the Arctic, searching for people and on Baffin Island way up north, going 900 nautical miles out to sea, searching for a, a boat, like doing, yeah, so it, it, your missions when you get called out just range from so much different stuff. Um, you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, I, I was just down in um, uh, Galveston. You, know, you get to walk on a, um, it was a destroyer. And even when I was walking on that, I'm thinking like, this is like, it's a big boat or a big ship. But man, like when you're on the ocean, I'm just like, that 
it, this thing didn't feel wide enough for me. It was like too tall. I'm like, I don't know how guys go on even a big ship like this and go way out there with like the power of the ocean. Like, yeah, there's no forgiveness. So it's definitely a scary job being way out there in the water. I don't know how people do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, just kind of block it out. It's kind of that same mentality I like almost talk about with, uh, you know, being like, oh, okay, like I accepted that I was going to die when I was like, when I was 20 years old at war. So like I kind of apply that to other things. I'm like, you know what, like it's all good. I'm going to landmark all my exits. If something happens, like I'm ready, but you know, we're good to go. You just kind of, yeah, got to, you got to make it that way so that you can get out there and do that dangerous job and do it, uh, you know, safely and effectively. So whatever you got to kind of talk through in your head to go pull it off, you do. So, yeah. Yeah. This is what I mean about you think this is normal. This is not normal shit, man. <laughs> like Nathan's talking about being on a like a major vessel out in the middle of the ocean. But when things go wrong, you and your you and your people are the ones who come out in a very much smaller aircraft than their ship and pick them up and and save their lives. Like you'll look back at this, I think, and and you'll realize. Well, I don't think you will realize until you get out and look back at it how exceptional it is, man. Um, it is a different mindset, and when you when you get out, it's 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 seductive. Like you look at your dad, right? He's busy throwing people out of airplanes on the city side now, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I do my shooting thing. Uh, there's other dudes who are teaching people to race motorcycles. It's, it's a mindset. Yeah. And uh, I'm just glad there's people like you out there doing it, man. So. Oh, thank you very much, Ben. I appreciate that. You can come all my ass off the side of a mountain someday. <laughs> <laughs> We're just coming up to the end of the time. He says, uh, keep you around an hour and a half. Um, I just wondering, is there anywhere people can follow you? Uh, or do you put anything on social media? Uh, I don't really update my social media. I have a, an Instagram, but I haven't put a picture on there in like three years, probably, or anything like that. <laughs> okay. People are willing if they, if they want, I can, I can put it up out there. Uh, they can view my profile cause I do have some, some stuff on there. Um, yeah. Yeah, shoot it, uh, shoot it my way, and I'll put it in the episode description. Like any links or anything else you would like up there. Um, but yeah, uh, man, I'm glad we could have you on, and you could talk to us about some of your experiences, a lot about the mindset of people going into these situations. Because uh, I think that's the big part that people don't get. Like obviously, they watch the movies, they see the explosions and all that stuff, but to uh, have the person here to contextualize a lot of that I think is uh, probably the most important part of this and, and, and kind of talking about some of these experiences. So, yeah. Well, thanks a lot for having me on Nathan. It was awesome. Uh, great experience. And um, yeah, it was really nice chatting with you guys. Cool. Good to see you, man. In my head, I'm kind of doing the, the old guy thing when you're like, you know, you're like nine or 10 years old and then I see your face on there and I'm just, just super proud and like super happy you become the man you have, man. Give your mom and dad a hug for me, man. I will. I will, Ben. And uh, it's good seeing you as well. And thank you for the kind words, man. You bet, dude. All right. Take care, Nick. And uh, yeah, uh, hang on there, Ben. I'll just chat with you real quick. Cool. All right. Okay. Stay safe, boys. Thanks.